In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul brings up a rather sensitive subject. If you've been following this series of messages on 1 Corinthians, you might very well be thinking, sensitive subject. We've just been talking about a man who's sleeping with his stepmother, lawsuits among believers, and sex with prostitutes. So now where are we going? (laughs) To the subject of marriage. Thankfully, this particular local church has not had to deal with the issue of gross immorality or lawsuits among us, uh, and hopefully no issues with prostitutes. But I'm guessing that this marriage thing might hit a little closer to home. In any local church, this one included, you'll find everything from marriages that are struggling to marriages that are hanging on by a thread to very strong marriages. And if the truth be known, even the strong marriages struggle from time to time. You can pretend that that's not the case, but you and I both know that it is. I've never performed a marriage ceremony for two perfect people. Every ceremony that I have ever performed was between two people, each of whom had an Olsen nature. And that means that sooner or later there will be conflict, even in the best marriages. Occasional conflict doesn't mean it's a failed marriage. Not at all. All marriages have conflict from time to time. It's how conflict is handled that determines whether the marriage will be a success or a failure. Right from the beginning, I should define marriage or a successful marriage as a marriage that glorifies God. It's a marriage that reflects God's love and God's goodness in the context of a lost and dying world. A successful marriage is one that provides a positive testimony to one's children, to one's grandchildren, and to one's friends. In many ways, a Christian marriage will reflect the couple's view of God. As we've been discussing throughout our time in 1 Corinthians, God has established boundaries for human behavior. If you prefer, he has established rules. He is God. He created us. He has the right to make the rules. He's also infinitely wise. And whether or not we want to accept that his infinite wisdom is reflected in the structure of the institutions that he's created. God invented marriage. And here's the bottom line right up front. I'm not going to keep you in suspense this morning. If you want to have a successful marriage, you need to play by the rules that God set up. It's as simple as that. I searched Amazon.com the last couple days and found that they have over 152,000 titles with respect to marriage. 152,000, actually 152,086 to be specific. And a quick glance at some of those titles reveals that very few of them give any credence, any place at all, to what the inventor of marriage thinks. Over the next few weeks, as we study this topic, I'm not going to give you psychological advice on how to make your marriage strong. 
If you want that, skip these lessons. Go to Amazon, buy one of those 152,086 titles or several of them. Stay home the next few Sunday mornings and absorb the material. And then you can rejoin us toward the middle of the next month when we're off of this subject. My approach will be to give you theology, not psychology. I'm going to give you the theology of marriage, if you will. Even though our current study is in 1 Corinthians, particularly chapter 7, and now some of you have read ahead and were eagerly anticipating how I was going to handle that passage. Well, that'll be next week. That won't be this week. But even though that's where we are, I want to introduce this subject by spending some time in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, specifically in the scripture reading that was read this morning by Alex Garcia in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. So if you close your Bibles from the scripture reading, I invite you to open them back up to that same passage. Now, and let's take a look at it once again. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, or as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as much as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. I'm not certain how many marriage ceremonies that I have performed, but one thing is pretty constant. When I come to the part in the marriage ceremony where the bride is to submit to the leadership of her husband. Many, if not most, of the 20-somethings, 20-something females in the audience react visibly and sometimes audibly. It used to irritate me. Then it began to amuse me, but now it grieves me because I realize that they've got this worldview of marriage that's not based upon the Bible. And they want to have their own system. And I know the reason it grieves me is because I know it's never going to work. That their system is never going to work. Now, I have to put a postscript on that. Usually after I explain the vows, it's not quite so offensive to them. But at least up front, boy, you see them squirming. I even saw one person, did you hear what he just said? I said, yeah, we all heard what you just said, too. <laughs> Listen, I can understand. I understand. Why so many women balk at the idea of submitting to their husbands. As it seems, at least on the surface, to be demeaning. Women surmise that submission is somehow an acknowledgement of inferiority. And they chafe at the prospect of that kind of archaic lifestyle. Maybe it was okay for my grandmother or my great-grandmother, they think, but it's not okay for me. I don't live that way. Then as an accommodation... Many pastors are to today are including verse 21 of Ephesians 5 in the marriage ceremony, which says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So there's a mutual submission in the marriage ceremony. The husband submits to the wife. The wife submits to the husband. Have you ever thought how that might work out? It won't. It's meaningless. That's not what this passage is all about anyway, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. It's actually pretty silly. Couples who will not follow the God-ordained system of marriage are doomed to a marriage that will never fulfill the potential that God gave it. Oh, you may stay married. You may have moments of happiness. But as a Christian, that marriage won't ever fulfill the potential that it was intended to have. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want to have God-honoring, fulfilled marriages. And if we want to do that, we need to do it God's way. 
Let me tell you just a little bit about the overview of the, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, because we've studied it on Wednesday night, but it's been a little bit of time now. Before we get into the specifics of these verses, following his custom, in the beginning of Ephesians, particularly in the first three chapters, Paul lays out this incredible theological case of the salvation that we enjoy that's a result of God's work through Christ on the cross and his elective grace. Then in the final three chapters, he outlines the behavior that's expected of the believer in view of that heavy theology that he presents in the first three chapters. Perhaps you remember that from our study of Ephesians. But the last three chapters tell us that we're to live a lifestyle that's marked by unity, that's chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, holiness, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, love, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, light, in chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, and then finally, a lifestyle that's marked by wisdom. That's chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. That's the section that this information about marriage is found in. That portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he's telling us, based upon that incredible information I told you about you being saved, how you got saved in the first place, I want you to live wisely. And part of wise living, a great part of wise living, is the whole idea of a God-honoring marriage. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, although the two are certainly related. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied. It's one thing to know all that the Bible says about marriage, for example. I know what I'm supposed to do. I've heard that in counseling sessions when I pull out the Word of God and say, listen, can we, go, can we look at the Word for just a moment? I know all that. Okay. Are you doing it? And then that's a different subject. So it's not just knowing, it's doing. And the doing part is the wisdom part. You've got to have some knowledge before you're going to have wisdom. But the two of them go together. In this particular section, particularly in view of verse 18, Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, for that's a wasted life, but be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. We're encouraged by the Apostle Paul, who's teaching under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to live a lifestyle that's characterized by wisdom as a result of being filled up by means of God's Holy Spirit. Wise living is the key to successful relationships. And wise living means doing things God's way, under God's empowerment. The result of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, we saw, were four different things. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sang this morning, we were singing praises to God. But did you know you weren't just singing to God? Your singing was ministering to the other people in the room here today. It was primarily to God, but it also was me ministering to you and you ministering to me. As I heard those words, I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous grace and love to me. That ministered to me as I heard those words, as I'm singing them to my Heavenly Father. That's one of the results of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Speaking and making melody with our hearts to God. That's the singing to God part. Always giving thanks to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. The remainder of the chapter, and then through verse 9 of the next chapter, chapter 6, deals with what it means to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. 
Paul is going to address three specific areas of submission. The submission of wives to husbands, the submission of children to parents, and the submissions of slaves to masters, or perhaps in a more modern context, employees to employers. The presentation of the respective responsibilities in marriage is presented first, and by far and away more time is spent here than in the other two. Basically, what is going to be summarized here is that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and as they love their own bodies. That's the responsibility of husbands in marriage. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And they are to respect their husbands. In a nutshell, that's it. And you don't go into marriage saying, I know that, but. That's a prescription for failure. Your marriage is doomed as a Christian, if that's the way you go into it. A case could be made, and in the marriage ceremonies that I do, I do make this case, that Jesus Christ is actually the role model for both the husband and the wife in marriage. Jesus loved the church and demonstrated his love by sacrificing everything for her, for us. That's the model for the husband's treatment of his wife in marriage. And I tell couples, before we ever get started, when we talk about the marriage ceremony to begin with, I look the husband right in the eye, and some of you I've done this with, I say, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be a selfless, sacrificial leader in the home? Or is it all going to be about you? Because if it's all about you, you may as well stop it right now. Because it's going to fail. It needs to be about her. It's got to be about sacrificing for her, for her ultimate good. But Jesus Christ is also the role model for the wife. Because Jesus Christ willingly, willingly submitted himself to one with whom he was perfectly and eternally equal. There's no inferiority in the Godhead. Jesus Christ willingly submitted himself to his heavenly Father in order to procure our salvation. So that's why I think you can make a case that Jesus Christ is the role model for both husband and wife in marriage. But how does this work out in real life? Put simply, the husband, as the God-delegated leader in the home, has the responsibility to love his wife in a sacrificial way, with Christ's sacrifice as the model. And just as there is an innate bent toward treating our own bodies well, we'll see in just a few moments, we're supposed to treat our wife well, because Paul brings up this passage from the first part of Genesis that says the two are one flesh. And if I treat my wife poorly, it's like treating myself poorly, because of this mystic sweet union that we talked about last week between husband and wife. He must constantly consider the needs of his wife, willing the highest and the best for her. She is not an object to be used for one's own gratification, but she is another human being created in the image of God for whose well-being this man now has the responsibility. This should not be interpreted as the husband in a role of being a weak need pushover. Jesus, I, told, I said Jesus Christ was the model. Jesus Christ is not a weak need pushover. 
Even though he gave up everything, he sacrificed everything for the well-being of the church. Willing the highest and the best for someone may occasionally include saying no. Now, some of you are looking at me like, yeah, you're going to get a black eye for doing that. But not necessarily. If you really love them, sometimes you have to say no. And that is willing the highest and the best for them. But the key is selflessness, not selfishness. That's the key to the husband's role in marriage. And I've got to tell you, those of you that are young men and have not gotten married yet or look, looking forward to the prospect, if you can't do that, don't marry her. If you can't give up everything for her, don't marry her. Now, again, this doesn't mean you're going to be a weak need sissy. That's not what this is talking about. But if you can't put her needs first, if you can't envision yourself doing that, then don't do it. You're going to make her miserable and you're going to make yourself miserable. In general, as far as an overview, the responsibility of the wife is to respect her husband. And to submit to her husband as God's delegated leader in the home. The wife submits to her husband ultimately out of respect for the Lord. The model for the submission in this particular passage is the church, which submits to Christ. The key verses in this passage, wives, in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Verse 22, literally it reads, Women to your own men as unto the Lord. You may notice, actually, there's no verb in verse 22. In the New American Standard, and it should be this way in your Bibles too, the term be subject is in italics. For the verb, we have to go back to the previous verse, verse 21, and the, the Greek verb there is hypotasso. Before getting to that verb, though, which is central to the discussion, I would trust you all agree, let's make a couple of observations about the rest of these sentences, at least in verses 23 to 24. The noun women here can refer to women in general, but here in this context, it's speaking to wives. In the same way, men can refer to men in general, but here it's referring to husbands. You see, the Greeks didn't have a separate word. For husbands and wives. It's the same word as men and women. So the context determines what's being spoken of here. But I want you to notice, please pay careful attention to this, wives are not commanded to submit to men in general, but to their own husbands. This instruction here is placed firmly within the context of marriage. There have been cults in the past, and I'm afraid in the recent past, almost the present, that extend this submission of women to all the men in the cult, all the men in the group. And we've seen, tragically, the results of that kind of bad, bad theology. It's thoroughly unbiblical. But then, so are most everything that cultists prescribe. So it's wives to their own husbands, not wives to anybody else's husband. The second item that needs to be discussed here is this phrase, as to the Lord, in verse 22, or as I translated, as unto the Lord. There has been some discussion historically as to who's the referent there, who's the Lord there. Should it be a capital L or a small L? The Greek term is kurios. Thomas Aquinas held that the term referred back to husbands, and he took it to mean that wives were, and I'll quote him, 
to subject themselves to their husbands as a Lord. In doing so, he's referencing 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, when Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Then this Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you've become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. But I do this with fear and trembling, but this is one place that I would disagree with Aquinas. I think he was wrong as to the grammatical construction here, and that makes his interpretation very, very unlikely. Also, the presentation of Christ as the model for headship later makes the interpretation unlikely that the husband is Lord in that passage. No, the Lord in the passage, the ultimate motivation is the Lord, Jesus Christ. The wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord, or perhaps we could say, by submitting to her husband, the wife is submitting to the Lord. Because who told you to do it? The Lord told you to do it. So ultimately you're obeying the Lord when you submit to your husband. That would be very helpful to remember. The next time that you feel reluctant to submit to your husband, because lately he's been a pretty big jerk. Heard that before. I'll sit down in a counseling situation and we'll talk about this. And say, you're asking me to submit to him? You know what a jerk he is? Do you know how he treats me? Well, first place, I'm not asking you to do anything. You're submitting to this jerk, not because he's such a great guy, but because you love the Lord. And we're not a church that amens a lot of anything. Let's don't start now. But I know a lot of times, a lot of you ladies have to submit to us husbands because you love the Lord, not because we're necessarily that great. It would stretch the boundaries of meaning of the meaning of the text to say, as some do, the wife should submit to her husband in the same way that she submits to the Lord. There's a difference in that and what I said. There's a difference to submitting in the same way that you submit to the Lord and saying, as unto the Lord. The reason I say that is because wives can be certain that Jesus Christ is infallible with regard to his prescriptions. Unfortunately, the same can't be said for husbands. There may be times, there may be times when a wife resists the wishes of her husband on the grounds that he is requiring her to do something that is overtly or obviously sinful or illegal. But there will never be a time when a command of Jesus Christ is to be resisted on the same ground. The verb hupotasso means to submit or to subject oneself to another who has legitimate authority in that particular context. That's so important to our discussion this morning. I want to say it again. The verb hupotasso means to subject or to submit oneself to another who has legitimate authority in a particular context or situation. For example, if a teacher in a college classroom says that there's to be no texting or no talking, no checking your email during class, it's incumbent upon the student because the teacher's in charge, the professor is in charge of that classroom, to refrain from texting, checking your email, or talking during the class. It just makes sense. 
But if the class is over and the student is in the parking lot and the professor walks by and the student is texting and the professor says, I told you not to text. There's something wrong with that because the teacher's authority doesn't extend to the parking lot. It ended at the door of the classroom. In the same way, a police officer, in the course of doing their job, has the authority, if necessary, with the lights blaring and the flashing and the sirens blaring, to cut you off in traffic. If he's chasing down a bad guy. But not the authority to cut in front of you at the express line at the Randalls. Because he's in a hurry and wants to watch the football game. The authority doesn't extend to that express line at Randalls. That's what I mean by submission to authority must be limited to its proper context. This is also an extremely important thing I need to tell you today. Submission to authority in a legitimate context does not imply inferiority. It does not imply inferiority. In the Godhead there exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Nobody who is orthodox in their theology that knows their Bible would ever say that Jesus Christ is inferior to the Father. He's co-equal and co-eternal with Him. Yet He submitted Himself to the Father, one with whom He was completely and eternally co-equal. The same way with the Holy Spirit and the Father, or the Father and the Holy Spirit, the three members of the Godhead are completely and totally co-equal and co-eternal. Yet, the Son submitted himself to the Father. Submission does not mean inferiority. If it did, it would mean Jesus was inferior to the Father, and now we got a problem, a huge theological problem. That's what I meant a minute ago when I said I explained this in the wedding ceremony, and very few Christian women have a problem with it after that. Submission to legitimate authority doesn't indicate inferiority. In the same way, when you submit to a professor in a classroom and follow the rules, whatever rules that he or she set up, it doesn't mean that the professor is superior to you. It just means they have authority in that context. When a police officer pulls you over and you've been speeding and asked for your license and your registration or your, uh, the insurance card, you submit to him. If you're a good citizen, if you're smart, and you say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and you give them what they've asked for, but it doesn't mean that they're better than you or superior to you in God's eyes, but at that moment, you submit to them because they have authority, watch, in that context, in the context. But it doesn't mean they're a superior individual. Heaven forbid. Both the man and the woman were created in the image of God and are therefore equal before God. And by the way, husbands, you do well to remember that as a leader in the home. I love the way the Bible puts it sometimes. This is one for whom Christ also died, if you ever start to wonder. If this passage is handled with care and properly understood and then properly applied, it'll be a springboard to a God-honoring, fulfilling marriage. It's when we don't follow that prescription that problems arise. And then we move on to later on in the passage 
to the husbands. Husband, love your, wife, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Skip down to verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we're members of his body. We've talked about this before in 1 Corinthians, and we'll talk about it more later. When we trust Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, and I assume everybody in here has done that today. If you haven't, you want to consider it. When we trust Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, we are placed by the Holy Spirit in something that's called the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That's what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you are my brother in Christ. You are my sister in Christ, and I am yours. There's this incredible union that has taken place. We're part of one body. It's just one of the metaphors for the church. But we're part of one body. And that's one of the things that is going to be brought up in 1 Corinthians as well. But Paul brings it up here. We're members of his body. And then he goes back to that passage that Paul quoted in our study last week. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now there's not a direct parallel here. But Paul's drawing some similarities between us being part of the body of Christ and that making you my brother or you my sister. We're part of a family now. There's something as I said last week, mystic and sweet about it, this union, well, there's also something that's incredibly special about the union that takes place between husband and wife in marriage. It's not just physical, but it's partly physical. In my view, there's, there's a union that's even deeper than purely a physical union. And remember last week, Paul was saying, because of this intimacy, this intimate union, we're not to take this body and unite it with a prostitute and engage in immorality. That's what made it so bad. It was because you're violating this incredibly special thing that God did in marriage. So the second part, the second point that Paul is making to the husbands, you love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, but you also love your wife like you love your own body. Today there are people that purposely damage their own bodies. I saw some things on the Yahoo homepage the other day about people just slashing themselves. But when people do that, don't we view that as grossly abnormal behavior? When somebody would do that, we would think immediately that that person needs to see perhaps a psychiatrist. They need some help and they need it quickly because ordinarily we don't purposely damage our own bodies. Now, I know you can make a case, well, we smoke and we drink Dr. Pepper and we overeat and we don't exercise, those kind of things. But I'm, I'm not talking about that. Those are kind of slow, insidious abuses of our own body. But generally speaking, if I know that the burner is hot on the stove, I'm not going to purposely put my hand on it and see what kind of scar it leaves later. That's, that's silly. And it's abnormal, and it would be a form of insanity to do that. And, and Paul knows that, and all the rest of us do too. So Paul's telling us that we ought to treat this wife of ours, who's in some sort of incredibly sweet union with us because of 
the idea of the first marriage, what was reported back then, we ought to love our own wives as our own bodies. Notice there, too, our own wives. Not somebody else's wife, but our own wives as our own bodies. You see, Paul's driving this point home that this union that took place when you said, I do, is a very special union, both for the wife and for the husband. And again, if you can't follow God's divine prescriptions, you're better off not doing it. There are several prescriptions. When I sit down and talk to a young couple, and I know some of you are in this situation, I've talked to you before, but I'll say there's just a few things that we need to talk about. One is that I would ask you, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus? And is your husband or wife-to-be a believer in the Lord Jesus? If that question is answered no, you've got to pull out right away. Or if the question is answered sometimes like it is, well, <laughs> we need to sit down and talk. There shouldn't be any well. It should be yes, absolutely. If there's a well, then I sit down and ask them, tell me about your salvation. Tell me about when you came to Christ. I also tell people that I only do biblical vows. I've only had one time, one time in my life, actually one and a half times. The second time it didn't come up until a little bit later, but one time where the person backed out right then. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do biblical vows. But the third thing is, has to do with giving the gospel. And I've had one person back out on that too. No, I don't want you to give the gospel at my wedding. But aside from those extreme examples, if you're going to get married to another human being who's a believer in the Lord Jesus, it makes sense to me that you would want to do it in a biblical way, wouldn't you? You've got the greatest opportunity for success, and you've got the greatest opportunity to fulfill the potential that God gave you in marriage. I started this by saying that even in a church that's healthy, you have marriages of all types. You have some marriages that are struggling. You have some marriages that are hanging on by a thread right at this very moment. You have some marriages that are very strong. One of the things that is so beautiful about the way that Christ set up his church was that he set it up so that those that were strong marriages and have been married 40, 50, some of you, I know, 60 years, can minister to those who are just thinking about getting married or have only been married for a short time. That's the beauty of a local church where you have people of all different age groups. I am fundamentally against churches that are homogenous with regard to their ages. You know, churches that are all 30 and under, are all 40 to 50, are all 70 and over. That's not a healthy church. I'm telling you, it's not a healthy church. Even though people think it might be growing and vibrant, it's not healthy, and I'll tell you why. Because people in churches are expected to minister to other people in those churches. And if a church is only 30 and under, who's going to minister to those young couples when they get in trouble? Who's going to set them aside and say, you know what, we went through that too. I know, what, I, know, I know what you're thinking right now. I know how you're feeling. We went through that. But you know what? You can get through it if both of you will devote yourselves to the Lord. Here's what we did. And it makes a world of difference. And then, by the way, those who are the under 30 group, maybe under 25 group, have something to offer too. They've got vitality and energy and enthusiasm. 
to bring to a church. So I'm fundamentally against churches that are homogenous with regard to their age. I don't think that they're healthy churches. We need everybody. And if you've been married 60 years, as at least two or three of you have, two or three couples, you need to engage yourself in seeking out the younger couples and befriending them and mentoring them. You have a lot to bring to the table. And if you're a young couple that's just getting started, and maybe things aren't as easy as you thought they'd be. You know how that first year, statistically, that first year is a tough year. Very difficult year in marriage because you've got two people who are used to living by themselves, hopefully. And then they come together and live together. And changes have to be made. He's got to learn to pick up his clothes and to do some other things that wives make sure that we learn in that first year. <laughs> With toilet seats. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly. But you know, <laughs> She's one of the 60 year marriages, right? Yeah, she knows that. But if you're in that younger category and things start getting difficult, let me propose something to you. Before pulling up Amazon.com or barn, going down to Barnes & Noble and buying a secular book on how to have a happy marriage, seek out somebody in your church that has a happy marriage. They can give you some wisdom on how it's really done. And can show you that it works. That's what would make a healthy church, a healthy congregation. Take advantage in a positive way of the other people that have already gone through it. Marriage can be an incredibly wonderful thing. Or it can be a source of incredible unhappiness. And again, please don't amen that. But that's true, isn't it? It can be a source of the greatest contentment in life. Or it can be a source of great non-contentment. Now, what I want for you is for it to be a source of contentment. Now, I know not everybody here is married. Some of you have been married and are now widowed. Some of you have been married and for other reasons are now single. But that doesn't mean that you can't still give helpful advice to those that are looking for it. That's what real mentoring in a church is. People who have, have the experience mentoring those who don't have the experience and those who don't have the experience being humble enough to seek out advice from those who do. 